you have your Bibles with you, open them with me to the book of Judges, chapter 4. Judges, chapter 4. As you know already know, we've been examining the question, what is the right thing to do? One of the things that I hope you're seeing in this series is that, that certainly every week, and in some cases every day, you are faced with a situation where you have to decide what is the right thing to do. And sometimes discerning what is right is pretty easy. I mean, it's like black and white. You just know it in your, in your gut. You know it. It's pretty clear. But many times, more often than we often like to admit, what is right is not easily determined. The book of Judges gives us some principles on how to determine what is the right thing to do. But it not only gives us principles to help us determine what is right, it motivates us to do what is right once we know it. Judges chapter 21 verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They were wanting to do what was right, trying to do what was right, but they were failing miserably because they had a skewed concept of what was right. What was right for them was what was right in their own eyes. But what is right in our own eyes is not always what is right. Judges chapters 4 and 5 are unique in the book of Judges and unique in the Word of God because God raises up another deliverer, but this time she's a woman. And when you consider the mindset of the not only the Old Testament but the New Testament as well, the fact that the writers of the Bible would even write about a woman who is a leader, was quite amazing. Judges chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. After Ehud died, now you remember Ehud, he was the southpaw, the left-hander, who killed a, a fat man, king, a very fat king. After Ehud died, the Israelites once again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Yabin, a king of Canaan who reigned in Hatzor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagayim. Because he had 900 chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, 
the commander of Yabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Now, if you just stop right there uh, without reading the rest of the chapter, you're going to assume, I, I assumed the first time I read this, that the woman that God would hand Sisera over to was Deborah. Not going to be Deborah. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, those are two tribes of Israel, 10,000 men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zaananim near Kedesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Herosheth Hagaim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Herosheth Hagaim. All the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there were friendly relations between Yabin, king of Hatzor, and the clan of Heber, the Kenite. So Yael went out to meet Sisera. This is a woman. Yael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Yael, Eber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg through his temple in the ground, and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Yael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Yabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Yabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. These are not women to be fooled around with here. They are women to be reckoned with. The day that two women stepped up to the plate. During the uh, war between the states, the Union Army was running low of soldiers, and Abraham Lincoln 
decided that they needed to enact, he and Congress needed to enact a draft to draft young men into the Union Army. They decided that the draft would be done by lottery, a local lottery. Now, in that case, in different county seat towns across the northern states, they would take a list, a census of all the young men of fighting age, and they would put all their names in a lottery bin, and they would draw out however many they needed, and that was how the draft was operated. Not every man was drafted, but only those whose names were drawn in the lottery. A congressman suggested during the debate about the draft and the lottery, a congressman suggested that they enact with the lottery a unique provision. The provision went like this. If during the draft your name was drawn and if you could afford to do so, you could pay someone else to go in your place. They debated this provision. Now I want you to think about that. What do you think about a draft done by lottery, a local town county seat lottery, with a provision that said if your name was drawn and you could afford to do so, if you're wealthy enough to do so, you could pay someone else to go, into your, to go in your place. Now just digest that for a minute. I want you to think about how you feel about that. Do you think that was right? For a draft to be set up so that if your name was drawn and you could afford to do so, you could pay someone else to go in your place. Now that meant if you couldn't afford to do so and your name was drawn, you had to go. You had no choice. Is that morally right? You understand what I'm asking you? Hello? I want to see what you think. We didn't take a poll last week. We're taking one today. I want you to think about that. Do you think that that is morally right to have a draft by lottery? I'm not asking if the draft by lottery is right. The part that I'm asking whether you think is right or not is the part that the provision that said if your name is drawn and you can afford to, you can pay someone else to go in your place. If you believe that that is morally right, that provision, would you raise your hand high? One, two, three, four, five, six. I see six. Last call. Six people said they thought it was morally right. How many of you believe it was morally wrong? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot of people. How many of you did not vote? Would you raise your hand? You voted now. You voted now. We had a few people who abstained. The vast majority of you said it was not right. They negotiated the deal, argued it back and forth, and Congress passed the provision, and Abraham Lincoln signed the provision into law. That draft was done by local lottery, along with the provision that if you could afford it, you could pay for someone else to go in your place. Andrew Carnegie, 
You've heard of, certainly, if you don't know Andrew Carnegie, you certainly know the last name Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie's name was drawn, and he paid someone to go in his place. In, in newspapers throughout the northern states, in the classified ads, there were people who put in ads. I will pay $800 for, for you to substitute for me. I'll pay $1,000. One ad said, I will pay $1,500. Now, if you consider the fact that even as late as the year 1900, the average salary of an American worker was $200 a year. Then even to offer someone $800, the equivalent of four years' salary in 1900, let alone 1862 or three, was a massive amount of money. Most people did not have that kind of money, but those who did had a way out of having to fight the battle, and that was they could pay someone else to do what they didn't want to do, and that was fight in a war. And most of you said that you believe that was morally wrong. Let me ask you another question. Not about military service, but about jury duty. How many of you have ever been called summons to jury duty? Raise your hand. How many of you have never been summons to jury duty? Raise your hand. Keep them held high. <laughs> How many of you would be in favor of a provision in the jury duty statute that says if you're summons for jury duty and you could afford to, you could pay for someone else to go in your place. I won't call for a poll on that. I just wanted you to think about that. Toward the end of that war, Lincoln appointed, he appointed several generals to head the Union Army, as you know if you know anything about history. One of them was a fellow by the name of George B. McClellan. McClellan was probably the most brilliant of all the generals that Lincoln ever appointed. And McClellan took the troops and he disciplined them and he, he got them new uniforms and he, he taught them how to parade up and down the street in perfect military order. Not a, a soldier was out of place. He would run them through drills and run them through drills and run them through drills and make sure that they were perfect every time they, they went out to march. But the one thing that he would not do is take them to battle. And he exasperated Lincoln to the point that one day Lincoln told him, he said, I'd like to borrow your army since you're not going to be using it. McClellan knew what his role was. He knew what his responsibility was. But he refused to do it. And as a result, Lincoln replaced him. Made McClellan mad in the 1864 election. McClellan ran against uh, Lincoln, but he lost. But Lincoln replaced him because he knew what was right to do, but didn't do it. Now, we've been looking at this question since the 1st of January. What is the right thing to do? 
And we've uncovered several principles that we use, all of them right sometimes, but not all the time, but principles that we can use to determine right from wrong. Sometimes the right thing to do in a given situation is that which benefits the largest number of people in the situation. If you have only two options, it would be better on the trolley car to take the right and run over the one person rather than the five, most of you said. That's a principle based on, uh, based on the overall welfare of those involved. Sometimes, though, what is right depends upon the values we place on all the people and the things involved. If the one person at the end of the sidetrack is your only son, some of you said that the value of that relationship with your son was such that you would go straight even if it meant running over the five workers at the end of the trolley line. That's a, that's a, a, a determination about what is right based upon values that you place upon the people or the things involved. Sometimes what is right is based upon the built-in nature of the act itself. You could probably relate this back to me, but if you're standing on the bridge and you're overlooking the trolley car and you see that it is running out of control and it will go straight and if it does, it will run over five workers at the end of the track. There is no side track. There's a very, very fat man standing beside you on the bridge. He's leaning over the bridge. He's smoking a cigarette. I didn't tell you, but I can, I can share this with you too. He's eating a, a baker's dozen of Krispy Kreme red hot donuts. You could nudge him. He'd go over the ledge and onto the track, and he'd be big enough to stop the trolley. You don't know him, so there's no values to be placed there. And obviously, uh, in your opinion, since he's smoking and eating donuts, uh, he doesn't care about his life. And so, you know, you sacrifice one to save the five. It meets the, the general welfare principle. It doesn't violate the values principle. But you told me several weeks ago when I first gave you that hypothetical scenario that it was just wrong to do that. There's something inherently evil about nudging that innocent man over the ledge and onto the track. Sometimes what is right is based upon the inherent nature of an act. Sometimes an, an act is so evil that it is wrong to do even if it might save lives in the end. Sometimes an act is just the right thing to do and therefore ought to be done. Sometimes we found that if you open up the door of sin and temptation in your life, I mean just crack it open a couple of inches, enough sin and temptation will come into your life that it skews your ability to determine right from wrong. A person who has dabbled in drugs, for instance, before long, sometimes with one single hit will skew his mind to the point that he cannot determine what is right, what is wrong. A person who is, is in a marriage relationship, who is married, and they find themselves obsessed with another person with whom they're not married, that infatuation can warp that person's thinking to the point where they don't discern the right thing to do. Just letting in a little bit of sin will do just that. Furthermore, we found out from the book of Judges that there are times when, when we need 
the counsel of people we respect. I call them influencers to help us in determining what is right and wrong. Moses had this. Uh, he was overworking himself. He was, he was uh, on his way to an early death when his father-in-law Jethro said, let me give you some advice. Moses listened to the advice of his father-in-law and he followed his advice and it, and it probably lengthened Moses' life because he listened to the counsel of an influencer and that influencer helped Moses to know what is the right thing to do. Then we saw that past experiences Lessons you learn from past experiences help you to know what is right and what is wrong. And then last week we saw with, through, the, through the, the deliverer Shamgar in Judges chapter 3, the last verse of chapter 3, Shamgar defeated 600 Philistines with, a, with an ox goad, an ox goad which, which the ancient Hebrews used as a metaphor for the conscience. God gives us a conscience to help us to determine right from wrong. But that conscience can be seared. It can be ignored. It can be neglected. It must be nurtured. Now, all of those principles are principles that at some time or other we use, sometimes we'll use all of them, in order to determine what is right in a given situation. But there's a problem here, and that is this. Those principles, and, and us, us studying those principles, assumes that we will do what is right. You see, the fact of the matter is, and you already know this, you don't need a preacher to tell you this, much of the time, we won't do what is right. Now, that doesn't mean that we will do wrong all the time, but we will quite often, more often than, than we really would like to admit, we will choose the wrong way. Now, this is a story here in Judges chapter 4 about someone who knew what was right but didn't want to do it. His name was Barak. It was during a time when Deborah, a woman, was the judge or deliverer Israel had disobeyed God. God had delivered them into the hand of the Canaanites. They were oppressed by the Canaanites for at least 20 years. And God raised up a woman, Deborah. And she's very much like Moses. She's a prophet, as Moses was. Moses was the first prophet of Israel. She sat under a palm tree near, in between the cities of Ramah and Bethel. And, and the Israelites would line up to her and she would settle disputes between uh, different two or more parties of Israelites. The same thing that Moses did when Moses led the children of Israel out into the wilderness of Arabia. So she's very much a Moses prototype person. And the Bible says that she goes to Barak. Now we don't know if Barak's a military man. He's just the son of a fellow named Abinoam. We don't know Abinoam. But she goes to Barak and she says, I want you to take some troops from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun, take about 10,000 of them, and I want you to, to go against Sisera, the commander of the armies of Canaan. And God has said for you to do it, Barak, and not only that, whenever you go against him, God says, I will draw Sisera out to you with his 900 chariots, overconfident chariots, and I will deliver him into your hands. Now go do it. Deborah says to Barak, and Barak says to her, very interesting response. He says, 
to this woman, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I'm not going. Now, Deborah is married to a fellow named Lapidoth. She's a mother, and she's the leader of Israel, at least a certain region of Israel. And Barak is no relation to her at all, and he wants her to leave her husband and her children temporarily, wants to draft her into the army and go with him in his military campaign against Sisera. And so Deborah says to him, she says, all right, I will go with you. But she said, since you put it on those kind of terms, I will tell you this, the honor will not be yours, for God will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. You'd think that woman would be Deborah. But the story is a little deceptive in that way. They go out, and, and they go out against Sisera. Sisera brings his chariots out, and God puts fear into the heart of Sisera and his troops on 900 chariots flee the battlefield. And they are routed and they are destroyed. And Sisera flees. He gets out of his chariots, probably stuck in the mud somewhere. And he runs and he finds the tent of a fellow named Heber. Heber the Kenite. Now Heber is related to Moses. But he has become really good friends, too good of friends with the Canaanites. And so Sisera feels comfortable going to Heber's tent. Well, when he gets there, Heber is not there. But his wife, Yael, is there. Yael is a name that includes, the last half of the name includes God. Never wrestle with a woman who thinks she's God. Don't do that. She welcomes him in the tent. Come on in here and don't be afraid. That was a lie. Come in here and don't be afraid. He says to her, I am thirsty, give me some water. What does she do? She gives him milk. Now that should have been a, white flag, a yellow flag for uh, Sisera, but it, it just went right over his head as it does most men, I guess. He goes in, he's exhausted, he lays down, he goes to sleep after he drinks the milk, and she takes a tent peg. After all, they're in a tent, so they have extra pegs around there. She picks up a peg and a hammer while he's sleeping on his side and she hammers a tent peg right through both of his temples and into the ground. It's not enough just to, just to push it into his brain. She nails his head to the ground. And when Barak finally gets there, Yael comes out and says, I want to show you the man that you've come to kill. He's already dead. And Barak goes in the tent and finds Sisera nailed to the ground. Barak is someone who knew what was right but was not willing to do it unless somebody went with him. I've been thinking about this, this issue. Why do people not do what is right? And I've determined that sometimes some people do not do what is right because they do not want to do what is right. In fact, there is an underlying uh, assumption to the book of Judges, and that is that over and over and over again, these people didn't want to do what was right. 
There was no king in Israel, nobody to tell them what to do, and they did what was right, but in their own eyes. They didn't want anybody else determining for them what was right. And there was this continual downward spiral. They disobeyed God. God handed them over into an, a foreign king. They, they were oppressed. They cried out to God. God raised up a deliverer. He delivers them through the deliverer, whether it's Gideon or Samson or Deborah. And there's a period of peace. Then the deliverer dies and they disobey God again. And it happens some 17, 18 times over and over throughout the chapters of the book of Judges. They did not want to do what was right. John chapter 3 verse 19 Jesus said this he says this is the verdict light has come into the world but men and women love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil sometimes we don't do what is right because we don't want to do what is right second sometimes we don't do what is right because we're confused about what is right now I'm just going to tell you something we're, right here at PBC we're confused about what is right I don't know how many polls we've taken since January the 1st in these morning services, and I have yet, we have yet to have everybody agree on any given situation, whether it's a trolley car or uh, rescue missions from Haiti. Every time we take a poll, we can't agree on what is right. It's not easy determining what is right sometimes. And so some people refuse to do what is right because they are confused about what is right. And then third, I've noticed that some people don't do what is right because of fear. Well, I'm afraid this mission won't succeed. Uh, fear of failure. Or I'm afraid uh, that it will succeed and there will be ramifications to that. You know, some folks are afraid of succeeding. Because success brings its own struggles and problems. And so we will back off of, of doing what we know is right simply because we're afraid that it might work. Some people fear the unknown. Well, I would do it. I know it's right. But gosh, there's so much about it I don't know. And so I'm not going to step out and do it. And some people don't do what is right because they fear, of a, fear some loss of happiness. We're big on happiness in America. And if we think that we're going to do something right, but it might result in a loss of some happiness, we quite often will back away from doing what is right because suddenly we value happiness above righteousness. In this chapter, though, there's something very clear that I want us to see. You can actually know what is right. You can go all through those principles. You can know what is right and not do it. In one of the little Johns in the back of the New Testament, John said this. He says, to him who knows to do good, and he does not do it, to him it is sin. Let me paraphrase that. If you know to do what is right, and you do not do it, to you, that is a sin. Ladies and gentlemen, it is not enough to know the right thing to do. You have to be willing to do it. If you know what is right, but you don't do what is right, then you have done what is wrong. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you desire a relationship with us. And we thank you that you love us to the point that not only do you want a relationship with us, but you want to help us do what is right. Lord, for somebody in this room this morning, what is right is to come forward and invite Jesus Christ to be their Savior and Lord. For somebody, what is right in this room this morning is for them to come forward and say, I've already been saved, but I want to join Palmetto Baptist Church. For somebody in this sanctuary, the right thing to do is to come and to pray. For somebody in this room, the right thing to do is to go to somebody else in this room and say, I just love you. Lord, help us, each of us, right here this morning to get a clear idea of what is the right thing for us to do right here now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.